Today's reading comes from Revelation 12, 1 to 17, and 19, 11 to 21. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up with God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days. Then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens rejoice, but terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. When the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But she was given two wings, like those of a great eagle, so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for a time, times, and half a time. Then the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth. But the earth helped her by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that gushed out of the mouth of the dragon. And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. And now chapter 19, 11 to 21. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe 
and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, we began our journey through the book of Revelation, and uh, many of you have come up to me and said, boy, I've been a Christian for a long time, and I've never actually studied this book, and I'm really excited about this, and I'm glad you're excited. I am too. Um, today is part two of our orientation to the book. Uh, if you missed part one, I highly encourage you to, to jump on our website or, or go to the podcast and, and just catch up, give it a listen. But the reason we're beginning with an orientation is because reading Revelation is a lot like venturing into the wilderness. It's unfamiliar. It's disorienting. And so last week we talked about, you know, packing our bag uh, before we set out on this journey. We talked about the setting of the book, that it was written to persecuted churches in Asia Minor in the first century, where Jesus' followers were facing increasing pressure to bow their knee to the emperor. We talked about the importance of genre. The Bible is not a book. The Bible is a library made up of 66 books written by dozens of authors across a period of about 1,500 years with all different kinds of literature. And so we need to be careful to understand what genre of literature we're actually reading. And Revelation is an outlier because it's not one, but it's actually three genres. It's apocalypse, prophecy, and epistle. Apocalypse is a uniquely Jewish literary form that arose out of persecution. While it uses highly symbolic, larger-than-life, fantastical images, its real purpose is to unveil, to reveal. That's what the word apocalypse means. It's a revelation, an unveiling. John is peeling back the curtain of history so that we can see our present circumstances against the backdrop of eternity. Apocalypse gives us an angel's eye view of history. It shows us what's really going on just beyond the reach of our senses. So that's apocalypse. Prophecy is not what we think it is. It's not the newspaper written in advance. It's not so much about the future as it is about the present. What is God doing now? And what does God want his people to be doing now? And then an epistle is a pastoral letter. Pastor John wrote this book to seven churches that he had a relationship with. And so everything he writes, he writes with them in mind. Which means that every, everything in the book of Revelation meant something 
to those first century hearers. So as we read Revelation, our job is not to come up with some creative interpretation, but to try to understand what it was that John was communicating to his original hearers back then and there. And only then can we figure out, okay, what does this mean for us here and now? So Revelation is three genres. It's apocalypse, prophecy, and epistle. John, who wrote the book, was an apprentice and a close confidant of Jesus. Uh, Later, he became a prominent leader in the early church. And toward the end of his life, he was arrested, not for his religious beliefs, but for being a political dissident because he refused to bow the knee to the emperor, and he refused to stop calling Jesus Lord. So he was exiled to the island of Patmos, and while he was there, an angel came to him with a vision and said, write down what you see. And then finally, last week, we said that Revelation is all about Jesus, Jesus who was and who is and who is to come, the beginning and the end. One day, Jesus will reign over all things, including the renewed people of God from every tongue and tribe and nation, and heaven and earth will become one. So that was last week. Throughout this series, we're inviting you to ask questions. We're going to Uh, respond to a couple of your questions today, but there are cards at the connections table. There's a link in the video description uh, where you can ask anything you want about Revelation, and we will answer uh, as many as we can get to as the series unfolds. Our goal today is to familiarize ourselves with the main characters and the plot of the book, and then to work out some implications uh, for our lives. So first, let me just credit Scott McKnight and Cody Matchett, who wrote an excellent book this year called Revelation for the Rest of Us. Um, it's not so much a commentary uh, as it is a guide for navigating this book. I found it to be super accessible and helpful. Early on in the book, the authors invite us to imagine that we're going to a Broadway show, all right? And we're all decked out, and we get to the theater. And the usher brings us to our seat, and we sit down, and what do we do first? We read the playbill, right? Especially if you haven't seen the show before. So imagine that the Broadway play that you've gone to see is Revelation. And you open up your playbill, and you find a list of characters, and the characters are divided into two teams. There's Team Dragon and Team Lamb. And on Team Dragon are the dragon. The beast, both of them, beast one and beast two, and Babylon, and a few other minor characters. And you look over to the other column, and there's Team Lamb. Who's on Team Lamb? God on the throne, the seven spirits, the lamb who was slain, the woman, the faithful witnesses, and a few other characters. So who are these characters? Who are they? So you start reading the descriptions, starting with Team Dragon. And you realize that the dragon is Satan. One of the questions that someone asked last week was, why are dragons considered bad? How did a dragon become the symbol for Satan? Which is such a great question, because dragons weren't always bad. There's a Hebrew word that's used about 30 times in the Old Testament. It's tanin, or um, in the plural, it's taninim. But it's usually translated sea monster, serpent, or dragon. And it can refer to a sea creature or a land creature, but it's, this, it's enormous, it's powerful. And in the Bible's very first chapter, it says that God created Taninim. 
and called them good. But over time, they became synonymous with chaos and danger, and eventually they become a symbol for those who oppose God and his people. If you want to explore the theme of the dragon in Scripture, check out the Bible Project podcast right now. They are in the middle of a series on the dragon as we speak. It's fantastic. If you like to geek out on Scripture, this is the place uh, to go. Check it out. So we meet the dragon in chapter 12. And John, like many other biblical authors, is using the image of a dragon uh, to depict Satan as a chaos monster who tries to supplant God, devour God's people, and unravel God's good creation. At the beginning of chapter 12, the dragon, we just read this, is in heaven. But then he's cast down to the earth. Satan is a fallen angel. He is a good creature gone bad, an agent of truth and goodness who becomes an agent of deceit and chaos through his pride. The dragon is the shadow side of God's good creation, the one who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. In Revelation, the dragon is always seeking power. He's always deceiving and threatening violence. First, he tries to rule in heaven, but he cannot supplant God from his throne. So later on, he tries to kill the child of the woman who is Jesus, but he fails at that. So he goes after Jesus' followers. But ultimately, the dragon is defeated. He is bound and later destroyed. Now, what does all this mean? What it means is that underneath the evil that we encounter in the world is a deep, menacing power that wants to supplant God, destroy Jesus, deceive people, rule over us, and transform us into its own slithering likeness. If you happen to love dragons, please don't take this personally. Just know that in the ancient world, pretty much everywhere, across most cultures, not just Israel, dragons and serpents were widely used as symbols for chaos and evil. All right, what about these, these two beasts? Who are they? Well, we meet them in chapter 13. The first beast is all about power. His mission is to carry out the will of the dragon. He is the dragon's puppet. He is the mask that the dragon wears, the human agent of chaos, deception, violence, oppression, opposition to Jesus and his followers. The beast rules over the evil empires of the world. He demands to be worshipped, but his rule is temporary. So think Magneto, the Joker, the Green Goblin, Sauron, right? These are beast types. Probably one of the biggest mistakes that we can make is to go looking for a single person in history to be the beast. The beast is not an individual. The beast is a type. There are always beasts. There are always people who rise to power by dominating and exploiting others. There are always people who are willing to sell their souls and carry out the will of the dragon in exchange for power. Recognizing the beast has nothing to do with predicting the future and everything to do with discerning the present. Who in our world right now is carrying out the will of the dragon? 
who is abusing their power in order to oppress and exploit others. All right, what about the second beast? Well, the second beast is what Scott McKnight calls the sycophant-in-chief, the propaganda machine who deceives people into giving their allegiance to the first beast. Once again, the second beast is not a single person in history. It's a type. In some cases, it's not even a person. In some cases, it is a system of lies, hype, and spin. All throughout history, there have been people and agencies whose job it is to deceive the masses. And so the question is, who in our world right now is trying to deceive us? Who is trying to convince us to give our loyalty, our allegiance, to someone other than Jesus? All right, now what about Babylon? Well, we're actually going to spend the next two weeks unpacking um, what Babylon represents and why it matters. But for now, Babylon refers to the empires and the systems that dominate and oppress and perpetuate injustices and idolatries. Babylon is all about opulence, status, arrogance, power, military might, economic exploitation. Babylon is a political, economic, and ideological system that tries to shape and dominate people's imaginations so that the way of the dragon begins to feel normal and even virtuous. The original Babylon was literally Babylon, okay? An ancient city turned empire that conquered, plundered, and enslaved countless cities and nations back in the day, including Israel. Uh, and their goal was to wipe out civilizations, to just blot out their memory, to plunder their talent and their resources in order to enrich themselves. That's what Babylon was all about. The Babylon of John's day was Rome. Rome got rich by enslaving and exploiting the empire. The first beast was the emperor, Domitian, and his army. The second beast was the elaborate system of propaganda that Rome unleashed on the millions of people that they conquered so that Rome could profit from their resources and labor. But through the symbols of the dragon, the beast, and Babylon, Revelation unmasks the pretensions of Rome, portraying it as a system of violent oppression, founded on conquest, maintained by violence and oppression. It is a system both of political tyranny and economic exploitation. There you go. That's Babylon. Once again, Babylon and the beasts, are not singular individuals, they are types that show up all throughout history, and it's our job as followers of Jesus to discern and resist them. McKnight says that Babylon is a timeless trope. Every century, every country, every state and city has its Babylons, and yes, every Christian even Christian institutions and churches have the potential to release the powers of Babylon. In other words, any system that becomes corrupt, any system that serves the, the, the purposes of the dragon, 
becomes Babylon, including some Christian institutions and churches. And that's a scary thought. So the question is, where is Babylon in our world? And in what ways is it encroaching, not just on our politics, that's obvious, but on our institutions and even on our churches? And how can we resist it? All right, what about the other side of the playbill? What, what about Team Lamb? Well, there's God on the throne, who is the God of Israel, the one who created all things, who rules over all things, who holds all things together, and who will one day make all things new. God is powerful, he's gracious, he's faithful, he will defeat the dragon, he will destroy death, and he will one day unite heaven and earth and establish the new Jerusalem, and to God on the throne belongs all praise, honor, and glory. The seven spirits are the Holy Spirit. God's power and presence within his creation, with his people. Seven is the number for perfection and completeness. The lamb who was slain is Jesus. Jesus, of course, has many names in Revelation. He is the faithful witness, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the lion, the light, the logos, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. The lamb conquers death through his own sacrificial death. And resurrection. He defeats the dragon. When he returns, he will bring both salvation and judgment. He will destroy evil forever and establish God's kingdom on the earth. We met the woman in chapter 12. The woman is a dynamic symbol. She first represents Eve, then she represents ancient Israel, then she represents Mary, the mother of Jesus, then she represents the church, so she's a bit of a multiple personality kind of thing. But in each carnation, incarnation, she is hunted by the dragon, and she is protected by God. And then next are the faithful witnesses. These are the people from every tongue and tribe and nation who give their allegiance to Jesus. And they share in Jesus' victory. Scott McKnight calls the faithful witnesses dissident disciples because they resist the dragon. They resist the power of the first beast, the deception of the second beast, and the systemic temptations and corruptions of Babylon. They are faithful to follow the way of the Lamb, even if it means suffering and even dying. The book of Revelation is not for spectators. It is not for speculators. It was written for faithful witnesses. To be a dissident disciple requires imagination. It requires attentiveness and discernment. We need to be able to recognize the characters in the play in real time. We also need to be able to, to recognize the plot, to know the plot. What story is Revelation telling? What drama is unfolding in this book? And it's tricky because Revelation does not unfold chronologically. And it should not be read literally. It's not a tool for predicting the future. So what exactly is it? Well, Revelation is the story of everything. It is the story of history. It is the story beneath every story. 
It is the story that gathers up all our little stories and gives them meaning and coherence. Revelation draws us into God's big story. God created the world. He filled it with beauty and order and potential. He created human beings in his own image to rule with him. But we rebelled against God, rejecting his leadership so that we could rule apart from him. In response to our rebellion, God didn't shut everything down. He didn't get rid of us. Instead, he pursued us. He wooed us. He even shrunk himself down to embryo size and took on our flesh and moved into the neighborhood But when he did that, we didn't receive him. We rejected him. We crucified him. But through his death, God was redeeming all things. A new humanity was formed as natural enemies were reconciled to God and to one another through Jesus' sacrificial death. And now this new humanity is called to show the world what life looks like when Jesus is king but it must do that in a world that is still in bondage to sin and death. But make no mistakes, friends. The lamb wins. The dragon loses. The beasts become food for the birds. Babylon is burnt to the ground. And evil is put forever on the scaffold of history. And the African-American church just said, Amen. And creation is liberated from its bondage to decay and darkness so that justice can flow like rivers and righteousness like a never-failing stream. The message of Revelation is that Jesus, not the emperor, rules the world. The church, not Rome, is the center of the universe. The faithful witnesses from every tongue and tribe and nation, most of whom suffer and die many of whom suffer and die, these witnesses and not the kings of the earth who oppress or the merchants who exploit will enter the new Jerusalem and take their seats at the great banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb. God is on the throne. God wins. Jesus, who humbled himself and became a servant, who laid down his life for his enemies, will be exalted. Whereas those who sought to dominate and control will be brought down. Death will be destroyed, sorrow and sickness along with it, and the nations will be healed. This is the view from behind the curtain. This is the true myth. The story behind and beneath all stories. So why does this matter? What difference does this make in our day-to-day lives? Well, first it means that there is a battle. A cosmic battle between good and evil, between God on the throne and the dragon who seeks to supplant him, between the lamb who was slain and the beasts who make war against the lamb and his followers. The Apostle Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, there is a cosmic battle going on right now. But our enemies are not people. Our enemies are not those on the other side of the aisle or the other side of an issue. Our enemies are not the people who outpace us or annoy us or disrespect us. Our enemies are the dark, dragony spiritual powers who know that their time is short 
and who are working overtime to try and deceive and distract human beings from the one who can save them. This has huge implications for how we navigate conflict and difference, how we engage the political process and civic life, how we work through doctrinal disputes and disagreements in the church, and how we pray. Friends, when we criticize people instead of their ideas, when we demonize certain people or avoid certain people or slander their reputations, regardless of how right we think we are or how wrong we think they are, we are operating under the influence of the dragon, not the lamb. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We are in a battle, but it is not against people. We are at war with the powers and principalities and spiritual forces of evil. The people who annoy us, the people who are mean to us, are the people Jesus came to save and the people that we are called to love. Second implication, Jesus wins. I have no idea how much longer before Jesus returns. All I know is that it's been 2,000 years since his first coming. And since that time, lots of empires have risen and fallen. When John wrote Revelation, Rome was the greatest superpower the world had ever known. 2.3 million square miles of land. 60 million people. Half a million soldiers. Untold wealth. Meanwhile, the church was this ragtag, ragamuffin, persecuted minority Maybe 7,000 people spread out across this vast empire, most of them poor, many of them women, children, and slaves, people with zero status and zero protections. Anyone with half a brain back then would have put their money on Rome. But 2,000 years later, there are 2 billion Christians. The gospel is spreading faster than ever before, and Rome was dumped in the dustbin of history 1,500 years ago. Go figure. Friends, Jesus wins. Even when it looks like he's losing, he's winning. Though the world seems off so strong, though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. My old Bible professor, Doug Stewart, said that the big idea of Revelation is very simple. Here it is. Despite appearances, God rules the world. And one day, he will overthrow the evil empires and establish his kingdom on a renewed earth. And therefore, no matter how hard things get, no matter what it costs, you can confidently and courageously follow Jesus because you know that behind the scenes, God is working to bring about his great and glorious purposes for history. Last week, someone asked, how can I, how can I talk with my non-believing friends about Revelation? And I'm not sure I'd start there. <laughs> but if you're going to do it, and there are probably more than one avenue, one idea is to think about this. In the West right now, there's a growing number of people who believe that history is nothing more than time plus chance. That life is randomness and chaos 
and that our lives are dictated 100% by our genes and our circumstances. That everything important, everything that makes life worth living is going to burn up in the death of the sun. And so life is only what you make of it because cosmically speaking, it does not matter. Millions of people believe this. Revelation reminds us that our lives have a telos. They have a goal, a purpose. And not just my life, but all of history has a telos. History is going somewhere. It's, it's going to be fulfilled. It's going to be completed. It, it has a happy ending. It's not random. It's not chance. It's moving toward Jesus, and since it's moving toward Jesus, it's moving toward beauty and justice and reconciliation and peace. And what's amazing, and this is part of the gospel, is that that future right now is moving backwards towards us, reshaping the present as we draw near to Jesus in community. So the gospel helps us to make sense of the world, its beauty and its brokenness. It gives us hope that someday all of life's contradictions and absurdities and tragedies will vanish. It assures us that the forces of chaos and darkness have a shelf life. And our lives matter, our decisions matter, we have a job to do, we get to demonstrate what the future looks like, we get to invite other people to that party. Now some might say, well, that's all very nice if you believe it. But you only believe it because you want it to be true. Maybe. Then again, it could be that we long for this precisely because it is true. Because when God made us, he put the desire for meaning and coherence and purpose in our hearts so that we'll go looking for him. C.S. Lewis says that if I get thirsty and water exists, if I get hungry and food exists, doesn't it stand to reason that if I crave ultimate justice and ultimate peace, it must be because I was made for another world? Could we talk with our friends about the deep longings of our hearts that this world does not fulfill and what they might be pointing to? Last implication. The book of Revelation transforms us through our imaginations. It changes the way we see the world. It shows us what's happening behind the curtain. It shows us what's really real, what's underneath mere appearances. And it's doing this symbolically. So please, 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 please do not take the battle scenes in Revelation literally. There's a lot of death in Revelation. You may have noticed in the passage that Karen read today. There's a lot of birds eating carcasses. <laughs> There's a lot of swords and fighting. Friends, they're not literal. The world does not end in a bloodbath. If you believe that it does, you have missed one of the most important points of the whole book. The way of the dragon is violence and oppression. The way of the lamb is self-giving love and sacrifice. We don't follow the dragon. At the white hot center reality is the lamb who was slain. 
So in chapter 19, when Jesus comes riding on a white horse and there's blood all over his clothes, guess what? It's his blood. That sword coming out of his mouth is the word of truth. Not a literal sword. Christians do not conquer the way that the beast conquers. Christians conquer the way that the lamb conquers, not by dominating and exploiting, but by laying down our lives in humble service and sacrificial love. Even if it means suffering, even if it means dying, if it comes to that. The battles aren't literal. They are dramatizations of the cosmic battle between good and evil. And the images of cities burning and beasts being eaten. And, you know, those images are meant to assure us against all odds that the Lamb and his followers will win. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings during a time of paralyzing fear and hopelessness. He created an imaginary world with, with orcs and trolls, dwarves and elves, wizards and magic rings in order to help us to see things we don't typically see. That there is a battle raging between good and evil, between order and chaos, light and darkness. And while it is cosmic, it has real world implications for all of us and for all of life. So no matter how small and insignificant you think you are, you have a role to play in this battle. You have a calling. And faithfulness to that calling will require sacrifice, perseverance, hope, friendship. If we read the Lord of the Rings literally, we will miss the point. The point is not we have to fight some orcs. The point is, well... I'll let Sam say it. I can't do this, Sam. We shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frugal. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. This shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Furrow, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. 
they kept going because they were holding on to something. What are we holding on to, Sam? There's some good in this world, Mr. Fertile. And it's worth fighting for. I've been pulled through time. <laughs> oh, Tolkien's apocalyptic imagination. You can't beat it. There is a battle raging. But it is not against flesh and blood. It is against the rulers and powers and the dark spiritual forces of this world. This meal that we're going to share this morning is a tangible reminder that the battle has been won. That on the cross, the lamb dealt the dragon a mortal wound. And while he continues to thrash about, the dragon does, God's foot is on his neck. And his time is short. And Jesus wins by means of his sacrificial death and his self-giving love, even for his enemies, even for those who are crucifying him. And we conquer with Jesus as we lay down our lives for Jesus and our enemies. If that's your story, if that's your hope, then we invite you in just a moment to come and to take the bread, take the cup, bring them back to your seat. Bring your whole life before God, even the confusing and disparate parts that don't make any sense, and hold them up against the backdrop of Jesus' victory and Jesus' return, and ask God for patience and endurance and then look around. Look at the community of faithful witnesses you're surrounded by and take courage. You are not alone. If you're here this morning and you're, you're 